This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It is only a paper moon hanging over a cardboard sea. But wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me It's a Barnum and Bailey world Just as phony as it can be But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me It is indeed a Barnum and Bailey world An examination of that fact and in its many manifestations has been something to preoccupy Radio Parallax throughout our entire history, I think it's fair to say. I recently stumbled across statements read into the first Radio Parallax, a sort of manifesto, what we were going to try and tackle. Unfortunately, I don't have that paper in front of me at the moment. Are you sure you want to use the word manifesto on the air? Uh, why do you ask, Mr. Kaczynski? That's why. <laughs> well, it is a rather stern word, and today we're not going to be stern. Today we're going to start off with, well, as only I think Radio Parallax can, an obituary that is nevertheless, I think, going to prove to be, well, something of a rib tickler. We do note with great sadness the passing of Alan Abel. Who, you might ask, as a new listener to Radio Parallax? Because we're certain that those of you that have been with us over the decades will remember our previous references and great admiration of Mr. Alan Abel, hoaxer extraordinaire. Mr. Abel passed away last week. You may have seen his obituary. This was not the first time Mr. Abel had passed away and turned up in an obituary. Back in 1980, no less of an authority than America's newspaper of record, the New York Times, noted, well, per its he- very own headline, Alan Abel, comma, satirist, created campaign to clothe animals. And before we revisit that <laughs> legendary hoax, we do want to note something funny about that obituary. And I guess it does sound a little odd that we're talking about, you know, humor and obituaries, but... You know, we all got to go sometime, and I think it would be desirable for all of us to leave the kind of legacy that when we do go, people are going to think about your life with a chuckle. That has certainly got to be the case with Alan Abel. Back in April of 1992, yours truly saved an article in Insight magazine by Mr. Tom Dunkel about Abel. I will be quoting from that shortly, but I also have, oddly enough, a U.S. News and World Report special edition from 2002, not long after we began this program, that was entirely devoted to hoaxes. The magazine's title was The Art of the Hoax. It was a special double issue. And in this issue, under the title of True Confessions, Alan Abel explained how it was he found Deep Throat and fooled the FBI, and, most interesting to this correspondent, arranged for his own demise. According to Abel himself, back in the late 70s, he was negotiating with a Hollywood producer over his life's story. 
Abel claims he overheard his attorney tell an associate to wait until his demise, saying, quote, we'll deal with his estate and buy it for peanuts, unquote. Said Abel, infuriated, I decided to expire. Cohorts reported my death, caused heart attack while skiing in Utah. And this was reported to the Times just an hour before press time on January 1st, 1980. The funeral home in Orem, Utah, confirmed the news. Actually, said Abel, the Wellington funeral home was my friend Paul Wellington's trailer. He had no phone. I offered to pay for one if he listed himself as a funeral parlor. Abel notes rather proudly, my obituary got two more inches than the inventor of the six-pack who died the same day. The producer was eager to renew negotiations until I resurfaced. The Times was pretty miffed. The cost of the caper to me, about $1,500, which is cheaper than a funeral. Abel noted in the wake of that caper that when he finally did get around to dying, people weren't going to believe it. And although Radio Parallax would not be completely surprised if he resurfaced alive in a week, we think this is probably really it. We live in an era of what has been labeled fake news. The trouble is when various dictators around the world and the current alleged president of the United States, also known as Donald Trump, allege that there's fake news swirling about him, um, generally it's not true. And it is strange to look back at um, the art of media hoaxing, which we will do for, I think, most of this segment, and see if we can't interweave that into the current situation of, well, not being sure in an internet era of whether the information you're receiving is any damn good. Some of it, after all, really is fake news. That's why we have such things as Snopes.com. It's been a continuing source of amazement to this correspondent over the years, how I get sent something uh, in social media that I take one look at and go, good God, how can anybody believe this? Thank God there are people like Snopes.com where you can then just basically cut and paste, send it back to the person and say, no, no, read this. We're living in a world of tabloid journalism. If you were buying groceries some years back and you saw one of those... uh, weekly world news type papers with the headline World War II bomber found on the moon, you might actually get a chuckle at the absurdity of it. But these days, I don't know, that might go viral. Before you know it, 100,000 people around the world might be pondering whether this World War II bomber, well, how how did that get on the moon? Let's not get too far afield of, of our extended obituary today to start off of Alan Abel. And we should reiterate, we've talked about it before, we'll now talk about it again, his most famous prank on America. Between the years 1959 and 1964, there was a rather provocative group who managed to get its spokesman all over the media. I believe he made The Tonight Show. And reportedly, while being interviewed by Walter Cronkite, (laughs) the cover of Senna spokesman G. Clifford Prout was blown. It turned out he was actually Buck Henry. While uh, engaging in pranks for Abel, Henry was also employed by CBS and got recognized by some of his fellow employees. Back in the 50s, Abel was evidently kind of peeved that TV was so drab. So, in conjunction with future comedian Buck Henry, the twosome began stumping on behalf of the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. You know, the name should have been a giveaway. The Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. They did have a catchy phrase, however. 
a nude horse is a rude horse. According to Inside Magazine back in 1992, over the five-year period, Cinna managed to get, to get attention from the BBC, the Miami Herald, New York Daily News, Newsday, and the Washington Post. But Abel was just warming up. In 1979, Abel put on one of his most expensive hoaxes. He says that his late friend, Maxwell Stackheim, a founder of the Book of the Month Club, gave him $35,000 to hire an Idi Amin lookalike, along with other actors, and rent a suite. The story pushed to the media was that Idi Amin, the Ugandan despot, had come to the United States to marry an attractive wasp debutante. According to Alan Abel, the quote-unquote Amin fought with his bride-to-be. A drunken judge administered the vows, and ABC ran a live feed. Also in the 1970s, as the Washington Post, Bob Woodward, and Carl Bernstein were under pressure to reveal who their Watergate source, Deep Throat, was, well, Alan Abel came forward and felt compelled to break the silence. His Deep Throat was a White House phone installer who eavesdropped on President Nixon's calls. An actor played the role well at news conferences he set up, but then he fainted. Abel noted that his attending doctor hustled him away, which was too bad because an agent purportedly was there with a $100,000 check for book rights. Among other enterprises that Abel was able to sell to the public as genuine were Omar's School for Panhandlers. Abel then naturally went around appearing on various talk shows as Omar the Beggar. Abel apparently actually published The Beggar's Handbook in conjunction with this endeavor, which included the following advice. Avoid drunks, because they won't listen. They waste your time with their problems and ultimately reward you with small change. A woman alone is high risk because she fears a purse snatch or sexual advance. Groups of women are excellent because each one will chip in, and this means a minor windfall. Alan Abel apparently at one point ran for Congress from the 4th District in Connecticut. Here were three items from his platform. One, install a lie detector in the White House and truth serum in the Senate drinking fountain. (laughs) Two, sell ambassadorships to the highest bidder. And three, my personal favorite, take congressmen off salaries and put them on straight commission. In 1992, Abel surfaced again purporting to be a financially strapped New Jersey college student named Thomas Fry. Thomas Fry attracted national attention by offering to sell one of his lungs or kidneys for $25,000. UPI apparently swallowed that story whole. So did Newsday, the New York Post, and several TV news crews. Evidently, Geraldo Inside Edition and NBC News taped segments with the desperate seller, then had second thoughts and pulled the plug before it went to airtime. Unfortunately, National Public Radio wasn't as lucky. It broadcast a live interview with Abel posing as the beleaguered, organ-rich Thomas Fry a few days before the gag unraveled. It was noted back in the inside piece that Abel says his schemes always aim to expose sloppy reporting and deflate the ever-ballooning pompousness of journalism. In his kidney caper, he claimed to be functioning as a kind of public service satirist, highlighting the dire shortage of organs available for transplant in the United States. Never ever would he stoop to doing anything criminal or irresponsible. An awful lot of people who were fooled by Alan Abel fall under what was described as the forgive and forget school of journalism. But uh, Scott Simon, who conducted the Abel interview on NPR, didn't see the humor in the kidney caper. For one thing, Abel went so far as to have a phone listed in the name of Thomas Fry in order to trip up fact-checkers. 
Scott Simon said the whole business had an acrid taste and, quote, played on the concern and sympathy of our listeners, unquote. Inside Magazine noted he could have added that it made NPR look about as savvy as a college radio station. Personally, I think that's a bit of an insult to college radio stations. I'm quite certain the crack reporters that I worked with at KDVS would never fall for this. <laughs> the magazine then quoted an exchange where Scott Simon shadowboxed with Alan Abel. Simon said, it strikes me not as a prank, but as a terrible misuse of your gift. Abel shot back, loosen up. What's the matter with you? Were you constipated? I can tell you that Alan Abel did fool me once, at least briefly, sort of, <laughs> along with a lot of other people, I think, listening to KGO radio that day. The Jim Easton program had a guest on who was explaining how an orchestra would be touring the country as a goodwill gesture, a public relations exercise. Uh, it was, in fact, going to be the Ku Klux Klan Symphony Orchestra, which the spokesman proudly said is now fully integrated. Their purpose, it was explained, was to, to show off the new clan, which is you know, quite, quite different than the old clan which did have some admittedly bad ideas. Hearing this interview with Jim Eason, I just about drove off the road with a what? But I have to give high praise to both Jim Eason as the uh, as a co-conspirator and Alan Abel as the deadpan spokesman. And, and in fact that, you know, he was, he was almost selling it for a while. After about eight or ten minutes, Eason finally started laughing and had to admit that he was in studio with Alan Abel. And there really was not going to be any Goodwill concert in San Francisco from the Ku Klux Klan Orchestra. Abel apparently cobbled together a living, uh, a modest living, as as a migrant jokesmith among his pranks. He did do the odd guest spot on radio and television in various capacities, once appearing in character as Dr. Harrison T. Rogers, canine plastic surgeon. Talking deadpan about butt tucks for schnauzers. Because he could not raise the $150,000 necessary for the prank, he was not able to execute one of his more grandiose plans, which was to capture the Loch Ness Monster. Well, a pseudo one, anyway. The search was to be, was to be conducted in a grand style. Abel was going to lead a, a team of researchers up to Loch Ness, set up camp, Net Nessie announced the monster would be auctioned to the highest bidder, then load the creature onto a flatbed truck under armed guard, dripping blood all the way from Edinburgh down to London, where they would hold a press conference and reveal the hoax. Somewhere along the way, Alan Abel announced that he was going to hold the International Sex Bowl Olympics. Abel claims the FBI compiled a 30-page dossier when he made that announcement, which was supposed to include finals live on stage. Another time, Abel advertised a symphony orchestra composed of dogs. He actually got calls to book performances. You know, the funny thing is, is as we report these antics of, of Alan Abel, we know that he is not a particularly reliable source on his own biographical information. He told reporters at one point he collects royalties from having written serious musical compositions, such as Serenade to a Sand Dune, which he alleged the Rochester Symphony Orchestra played when he appeared with them as guest conductor. When someone pointed out to him that Rochester does not have a symphony orchestra, he said, well, on second thought, it might have, maybe it was the Ohio State Fair Band. Back in the 80s, in the wake of Iran-Contra, Abel sucked the New York Daily News into reporting that a shadowy Iranian 
who claimed to have made $6 million commission in the Iran arms deal, turned up in New York yesterday and repeated his promise to return the money to the U.S. government after he deducted $200,000 for dinosaur research. And given the fact that in America we have a perverse uh, antipathy toward women breastfeeding in public, well, that's something that Abel couldn't let go. You no doubt heard, dear listener, reports from people like the La Leche League, who note that oftentimes women are told to leave public places like malls and libraries on the grounds that breastfeeding is indecent. There's been a lot of relaxation in this over the last few years, but not enough. But back in 2000, a group surfaced titled Citizens Against Breastfeeding. Self-proclaimed members of that organization were first cited outside the Republican National Convention, the one that appointed George W. Bush as their candidate. They were handing out leaflets advocating a total ban on breastfeeding, both in public and private. The flyers included language like, over 200,000 American citizens have signed a petition urging Congress to declare breastfeeding unlawful. This primitive ritual has, continues to be, a violation of babies' civil rights. It's an incestuous relationship with mothers leading to moral decay. Women enjoy an erotic experience that imposes oral gratification on innocent infants after birth. By this time, operators of the popular Urban Legends reference page took a look at the flyer and noted that one of the numbers listed on it was known to be associated with Alan Abel. Anyway, Alan Abel, we salute the hell out of you. Picture yourself behind this shield marching in a parade, singing lustily, Wings of Decency. Let's get on to the Sinna marching song. High on the wings of Sinna, we fight for the future now. Let's clothe every pet and animal, whether dog, cat, horse, or cow. G. Clifford Prout, our president, he works for you and me. So clothe all your pets and join the march for worldwide decency. S-I-N-A, that's our call, all for one and one for all. Hoist our flag for all to see, waving for morality. Onward we stride together, stronger in every way. All mankind and his animal friends for Sina, S-I-N-A. And in the 10 minutes we have left in this segment, I want to look back, I think, at some epic hoaxes of history and how we have spent a lot of time on this radio program talking about them. We did a segment many years back uh, where we talked about one of the most outrageous frauds in literary history, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It is a ridiculous fabrication, and yet is still in print today, being passed off in various circles as legitimate, even though it is now known that over 100 years ago, the Russian secret police concocted this work to discredit the monarch's Bolshevik enemies, many of whom happen to be Jewish. The book is a plagiarism of whole parts of a French parody written three decades earlier. We hope you caught uh, the Hidden Brain program on National Public Radio, which aired this past weekend. Tim Wu, a man we admire a great deal, was interviewed, and at some point he talked about one of the great media hoaxes of all time and how, it, how influential it was in the media that followed it. We're referring to the 1835 hoax appearing in the New York Sun newspaper. 
The Sun had sales of about 4,000 at the beginning of this um, episode. By the time it was done, they had shot up to 19,000, which made it the world's most popular newspaper and, in doing so, launched what has to be described as a new kind of journalism. Unlike the snooty six-cent journals of commerce that ruled the print media at that time, The Sun was the first paper that was going to support itself by marketing to a mass audience. They were going to give the news to the working man. Trouble was, the working man wasn't buying it. Until August 25th, when the two-year-old paper ran what it claimed was an earth-shaking article reprinted from the Edinburgh Journal of Science, a report from the renowned English astronomer John Herschel. The story reported that his powerful telescope unveiled lunar life. Earlier in the week, the sun revealed the existence of diminutive brown quadrupeds having all the external characteristics of bison. Day three discussed the biped beaver, noting that its huts are constructed better and higher than those of many tribes of human savages. And from the appearance of smoke, there's no doubt of it being acquainted with the use of fire. On the fourth day came the most sensational finding, man bats. The average four feet in height were covered except on the face with short and glossy copper-colored hair and possessed bat-like wings. The entire fabrication had been cooked up by reporter Richard Adams Locke. After six days of this, the, the paper had to report, oh, fire had destroyed Herschel's revolutionary telescope. Now, rival papers could not verify the facts because reaching John Herschel would have taken weeks. He was operating in the Southern Hemisphere in South Africa. What did they do? Well, they reprinted all the details. Just about all of New York's papers ran the story on their first page. Later on, Locke would disclose his role to a friend at the Journal of Commerce. The journal ran a story exposing the Sun series as moonshine. The Sun, however, denied Locke's involvement and never retracted the story. The Sun's circulation continued to surge even without fake headlines. Daily sales hit 30,000 by 1836. By the next year, there were more than a dozen penny papers in New York geared for the average reader rather than the elite. This hoax, in fact, gave birth to a new industry. Medicine has had some sorry examples of epic hoaxers. One in particular we spent about a half an hour talking about. That was um, our discussion with Pope Brock, author Pope Brock, about his book on Dr. John Brinkley, who was perhaps America's richest doctor in the 1930s by virtue of his erectile dysfunctioning cure, which consisted of placing bits of goat testicles inside the scrotal sac of his patients. We highly recommend, dear listener, that if you didn't hear that interview with Pope Brock, check it out on our archives at radioparallax.com. Someone who spends a a great deal of his life debunking frauds and charlatans is something that James Randi has done for a a large percentage of his life, and uh, we were very privileged to interview James Randi on this program, and that is something else we would very much like to refer you to, dear listener. That also is on our archives at radioparallax.com. The interview came out of a talk that James Randi gave at Ohlone College in Fremont a few years back, wherein I responded to the call of the audience of, is there a doctor in the house? and went up on stage to assist James Randi taking a massive overdose of homeopathic sleeping pills, which, as Randi pointed out, do nothing. In fact, all homeopathic remedies do nothing, except work by the placebo effect. But uh, for more on that topic, listen to the interview. 
We talked about uh, Charles Ponzi uh, at some point in the distant past, and we're not going to go over that again today, but it is sad to contemplate that Ponzi schemes never go away because the early investors with Charles Ponzi did very well. They became staunch Ponzi disciples. So, too, were the people who benefited from Bernie Madoff's machinations very happy with Bernie at first. And in the minute or two we have left, I would like to talk about the notorious art forger Emile de Jorge and his biographer Clifford Irving, who himself then became a great hoaxer with his phony interview and supposed collaboration with then-billionaire recluse Howard Hughes. But the fact of the matter is, Orson Welles did a better job than we can do in his wonderful film F for Fake, which we recommend to you very highly. Orson Welles was himself no slouch as a hoaxer. His 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast is a legend in, in so many circles. For the Radio Parallax closest to Halloween this year, we will re-air our, our tribute to Wells and what happened back in 1938. Uh, I think we've aired it three or four times in the past. It's worth another listen, I think. In closing, I would note that we had a chance to speak with radio legend Norwin Corwin, which I will also recommend you listen to from our archives. Corwin was just, just a, a wonderful interview. And at the end of it, he surprised me by revealing that he was in the CBS building the night of the War of the Worlds broadcast. In fact, his program followed Wells. I think I best just leave this in the words of Norman Corwin. I had followed the War of the Worlds, that Orson Welles broadcast, the Martian invasion. Uh, that immediately followed uh, Orson's War of the Worlds. I didn't know what was going on in the, in the studio beneath, directly beneath my own. And I found out later that Orson had emptied the living rooms of America and uh, that nobody could have heard my program. And I had a friend in master control whom I called the next day and said, how late did the calls keep coming in? He said, well, the last call came in at around 2 in the morning. And I said, that late? And what was the nature of that call? He said, well, it was from a a man that was probably a truck driver in New Jersey. And uh, I said, what was the conversation like? And he said, well, he he said, uh, is this the station that broadcasted that program about Mars? And the uh, master control man said, yes, it is, said wearily at two in the morning. He said, well, I want to tell you something, mister. My wife heard that program and she got so excited she opened the door and she fell down a whole flight of stairs. Jeez, it was a wonderful program. It's the Barnum and Bailey world, just as funny as it can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believe in me. All right, that's enough of hoaxers for one show. <laughs> You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for a more normal fare. If you can use that term for Radio Parallax.